thank you folks for watching and listening. We, uh, we didn't have the sound on at the first. We crave your patience and your forgiveness for that. We had a few items to discuss uh, here locally as a church family. What's a common expression for it? Housekeeping. We had a few housekeeping items to uh, speak of. But we want to include you. We love you very much. We pray for you constantly. We're keenly aware of you. Believe me. And we love your remarks when you, when you contact us. And we are extremely humbled by all of you folks from around the world joining us for the exposition of God's Word. And with all of our hearts, we hope and trust it has been strength and life to your soul and drawing you nearer to He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is absolute and ultimate reality for all of us. Happy Reformation Sunday. While the pagans are celebrating their pagan holiday, we of the kingdom of Christ celebrate one of the greatest events in the history of this world, that era five centuries ago, which was commonly referred to in your history books as the Protestant Reformation, in which the word of God was rescued from obscurity and darkness and was proclaimed with boldness once again. It set the world on fire. Perhaps millions of souls were born again from above, according to John chapter 3, and the world was changed. And the world was changed forever in spite of all opposition from the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of darkness. There is a, also another Latin saying, one of the battle cries of the Reformation, that time and since then, sepul reformanda, always reforming, ever reforming. And if there was ever a time where we need reformation all over again, in this nation, Western Europe, the Western world, as we say, the world over, that time is now. And we had best be prepared to do what they did. All in, all the way, or nothing. Come what may. For our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, who are about the country, about the community, and about this world, I will quickly read to you the hymn that we sang earlier, and thank you for choosing that because I was not going to allow this service to dismiss without this being sang this morning. This is probably, one, almost needless to say, one of the most famous hymns in the history of Christianity as well as Amazing Grace by Pastor John Newton. This, beyond the shadow of a doubt, should be considered the battle hymn of the church. Commit this to your memory. Make this song a part of your devotions on a daily basis and live your life in the light of its truth, because the truth of this hymn comes from the truth of the book, the Divine Library. It is badly needed at this time. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. I bet you don't have to be convinced of that verse much these days. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. This body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Uh, just a word before I ask you to stand and honor the reading of that little word, which shall fill the evil one and all of his and all of those who belong to him and his kingdom in this world and this universe. I draw your attention to the facsimile reprint of the Geneva Bible, the great Bible to come out of the Reformation. This is an exact facsimile reprint of the Geneva Bible in English. Uh, after the service, please uh, come up and, and enjoy it, ask for it uh, for time to time. This facsimile reprint, I'm so delighted with it in that it is just that, 
a facsimile reprint of one of the original printings of, of the Geneva Bible. This is really a piece of history, as well as the Word of God. And I'm going to offer it now to some folks in particular. Give me a moment. You folks are studying the Reformation this year. God bless you. At the end of the service, feel free to take this with you and keep it for a while. Look at it, study it, enjoy it. It is, it is wonderful. With that, all of you folks should be studying the Reformation. Always reforming, ever reforming. Very well, would you stand with me please for the reading of the Word of the Lord and probably the most famous passage in all the New Testament and all of the Bible. The Gospel of John chapter 3. Today, the text that we'll unpack, study the truth of, verse 17 and 18. For God sent His Son into the world. Um... Let me go ahead and start in verse 1. And we're going to keep reading through it, reading through it, and reading through it until we reach the, the end of the passage in verse 21. And hopefully some of the truth that we've discussed these past weeks will, will come to mind as we read our way through it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him, that is Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, now can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You hear the sound of it, you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus said in answer to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know. We bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of the heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So continuing on, of course, with this most beloved and written of and quoted well-known passage of Scripture, as you recall from last week, I hope you're either dealing with the words of Jesus himself, giving commentary or explanation, further or deeper knowledge to Nicodemus and to us, or we're continuing with the inspired words, the Spirit of God inspired words of the Apostle John. If you recall from last week, I gave you that, it's not really a debate, but it, it is an issue of study and question and that many Bible scholars, Greek scholars, believe that the words of Jesus, this recorded conversation with Nicodemus, it ends at verses 15. And John begins in verse 16 through 21 to make commentary on this conversation and to make commentary, more commentary or explanation as to the mission in his first advent of the divine Son, the person and work of Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh. So these very well may be the words of John. It's kind of interesting, verses 16 to 21 or something of a commentary on verses 1 to 15. And you should never, these, are, these verses are to be seen as a whole. They cannot be separated or detached from one another. 
And yet, if you notice, what's one of the most perfect encapsulations of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire divine library? It's John 3.16. That's why it's so well known. And so John 3.16 almost stands out all upon its own, even though we cannot detach it from this chapter, from this passage. And then what's interesting is verses 17 to 21 are something of a commentary upon what was stated in verse 16, and not only the whole the chapter as a whole. All right? Verse 17, either the words of Christ or the words of John, the truth remains the same. Let me read verse 16 again because 17 is helping to explain 16. For God, let me give you this translation. For God loved the world in this way, in this fashion. He put his love for humanity into action in this way. He gave his only begotten son, the monogones, the one and only unique son of the father, who is the second person of the triune Godhead, one with the father, that whoever believes in him should not perish, that is, perish in the judgment, the final judgment, but have eternal life, have this new birth from above by the power of the Spirit. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Now this verse is not in any way, shape, or form denying a final judgment, as some have wished for it to do. We'll discuss that shortly. But verse 17 is something of a commentary on 16. If you notice, verse 17 is focusing on what? It's focusing on Jesus' mission in the first century A.D., when the divine Son of God took upon Himself, according to the divine plan, a human body and a human nature, invaded His own creation to launch the greatest rescue mission ever launched, ever performed, to offer salvation to humanity by performing that atoning work, which would make salvation possible for humanity. So He's focusing on the Son of God's mission in His first arrival, in His first advent. And in His first advent, God sent His Son into the world not to condemn it, Krino o krine in the Greek, more upon that shortly. But in order that the world might be saved through him, or saved through or by way of the mission of the divine Son. So as we learned from last week, either way, the words of Jesus, or perhaps more likely the inspired words of John, when we begin in verse 16 here, verse 16 to 21 is giving you more com commentary, really more clarification, more explanation as to the, this, the plan of God in and for and human redemption. What is the mission of the divine Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh, in the mission of His first advent, His first arrival? And here I must tell you or remind you, there will be another. From the words of Jesus Himself, all through the four Gospels, through the inspired words of the inspired Testament authors, and I believe you can even, if you know what to look and listen for by doing no harm to the text, you can see the second coming of the return of Christ, even in the Old Testament. The entire divine library teaches there will be one and two advents, particularly the New Testament. He arrived first to save in the first century A.D. In our century or a future century will be the second advent, the second coming of Christ as we commonly refer to it. His second arrival, and that arrival will be in judgment. There will be another arrival. And we're to live our lives with very much a heads up expression the New Testament makes abundantly clear he could return imminently at any time any day any moment we are in the era of the last days because one of these days will be the last day the last days just didn't all of a sudden begin in our lifetime the last days began when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven in the first century AD that entire era to the time he returns are the last days because one of those days is going to be the last one be watching, be aware, be ready. So here we're focusing, though, specifically on his first arrival. The mission of the divine, one and only unique, monogonis, son of the Father. The mission of the divine son that in his first heaven, his first arrival, thank God, was entirely to save. Entirely to save. Sozo. In the Greek, funny little word to we English-speaking persons. I'll explain that word to you shortly. Sozo, it's a wonderful word for save, to free, to deliver, to heal, to restore, to repair, to save from certain destruction. All of these things are wrapped up in this word zozo, 
which we translate to save. In his divine mission in his first advent, as he so graphically told us in referencing the Old Testament, he is the divine and human son of man from the prophecies of the wonderful prophet Daniel. And when he arrives in his first advent, he is to be lifted up as shocking, even outrageous or outlandish to some as that may sound. He must be lifted up on a wooden stake, a wooden pole, just as Moses lifted up the copper snake in the wilderness to offer life to rebellious, sinful Israel. So the Son of Man, when He arrives, He will be lifted on a piece of wood to perform an atoning work, to be an atoning sacrifice, so that all who look to Him, His person, and His work on that wooden pole, they may receive life, life from spiritual acquittal from God's just judgment. In his, never lose the awe and the wonder of that. I know many of you folks have been believers for quite some time, and we, we run the danger of taking that for granted. Never take for granted the fact that God Almighty arrived in person, in the flesh, 2,000 years ago to save, to offer salvation to the likes of us. That should motivate everything you think, everything you say, everything you do with everybody that you're with every day that you live to the end and beyond. We do not deserve what He came to do. And He came to do it out of His love for us that we do not deserve because He is a loving God with a loving nature. And His plan, original intent for His creation and for humanity will not fail and will not be scrapped. Never lose the majesty, the awe, and the wonder with thanks and gratitude that God the Son arrived to save, that He did not arrive in person to judge once and for all and be done with it, as He had every right to do, every right to do, but He didn't. He came to save. And pray for this evil, vile world such as it is that we live in now. Because when He returns in our time or in the future, He will return to judge as the divine judge. He came to offer Himself as a sacrifice for the sins and rebellion of humanity, for the likes of us, to offer salvation to lost humanity, as vile and wretched as lost humanity is. He did not come in that advent to condemn the world. Isn't that interesting? Condemn the world. There's something there which means uh, giving a verdict and a sentence, but actually carrying that sentence out, executing that sentence upon the condemned. He didn't come to do that. Not yet, thank God. Not in final or lasting judgment. But that will come. That will come in His second advent, His second arrival, when yes, according to Jesus Himself in other conversations, in other sermons He gives throughout the Gospels, and in the words of the divinely inspired apostles, He will come back in overwhelming, terrifying, transcendent glory, irresistible power, and absolutely holy and just and equitable judgment to judge an evil, unbelieving, and rebellious world or evil, unbelieving, and rebellious humanity, once and forever and for all, as we commonly say. In verse 16, though, I'll remind you from last week, um, verses 1 to 15 is in the micro. It's this wonderful, very one-on-one, -on -one, very closed, intimate conversation between he who is supposed to be one of the great theological leaders of the religious establishment of his day and God Almighty in the flesh himself. But all of a sudden in verse 16, we step back into the macro. We leave this intimate conversation, whether these are the words of Jesus or John. And if you remember, we're giving something of the big picture. God's grand plan for salvation. The grand plan, or as I like to call it, the God, you're given the God's eye point of view of the plan of redemption for mankind. And so the rest of these verses, as I stated earlier, 17 to 21, they'll give further clarification, commentary, even application for the believer, how you should be living your life in this Advent, this time of the Messiah's salvation made possible to humanity, this time of the era of the church, the era of the gospel, the era of salvation in which we live. By the way, I'll remind you, you're one of the most privileged persons in all of history 
to be living in the time period that you're living in. As awful and horrible as the evil one rages throughout this world with his own, the New Testament constantly reminds us that you're one of the most privileged generations to be living in the time of the church, the kingdom of God in this world as it is now, with the spreading and proclamation of the gospel. Salvation which has come by way of the Messiah. And from that era until the time of His return, when the divine plan is all summed up, is all wrapped up, if you pardon the expression. So in verse 17, there's something of a clarification. We were told earlier what the divine mission of the Son was all about. He came to die. He came to be lifted up as an atoning sacrifice to offer salvation for humanity. But if you notice here, there's a clarification of what His mission was not to be. What His mission in His first arrival of, of his first advent was not to accomplish. Well, not yet. The son and the mission of his first arrival was not to clino o crine, to condemn or to judge. Not just yet. That's going to come at the conclusion of the plan. Or as folks say, the conclusion of history as we know it and experience it. But in here, his first arrival, his mission, I think he hammered me with this all week long. The mission in the first advent was entirely to save. That is an amazing thing. How is that for the graciousness and mercy and favor of God? To save. We don't deserve this. Not one bit. But we receive it anyway. Because He is a God of a kind and loving nature. And we'll see His plan through for His sentient creatures who are to bear His image in eternity. He's going to see that plan through. Absolutely magnificent. And so the Son came to perform His atoning sacrificial work in order to provide, in His own words, the new birth from above by the washing of water by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation decreed by the Father, the work of salvation performed by the Son, and the work of the Son applied to the souls of human beings by the power of the Spirit. And never forget that this salvation is for the entire world, cosmos, cosmon, in this context meaning this planet inhabited by human beings the world over. He came to provide salvation for all of the world, for all of humanity, for all ethnicities, for all cultures, on all continents of all countries, all humanity, not just the old covenant Jewish people. And they came to believe this tragically by the first century. Remember the Old Testament, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Through the Jewish people, salvation was to come to the world. But men like Nicodemus had conveniently forgotten that by the first century A.D. So Jesus' words of salvation to the whole world, they would have hated that. They would have been offended by that and taken aback by that. That the good news is He came to save all of humanity, not just the Jewish people. He most certainly came to save the Jewish people. It starts with the Jewish people, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the chosen people of the Old Covenant. By the by, I'll ask you another question. It's not, well, I hope it's not trite. Any Jewish folks here? Praise God if there are. But I see that there aren't. Thank God He did this for us. We're the pagans. We're the Gentiles. I, my ancestry comes from the British Isles entirely. And a lot of it up there in North Scotland and a few other locations. Oh my goodness, folks. The horrible, vile, violent paganism that was going on there in the first century A.D., from which I am descended. Thank God Almighty that God the Son came into the world to offer salvation to the entire world, all of humanity, to rescue people from all ethnicities from the fall of humanity and from the clutches of the evil one. This passage is abundantly clear, and this is good news for you folks out there all over the world. Liars are trying to tell you that Christianity is only for Americans or only for people from Western Europe. That is a lie. Christianity is for all of humanity this world over. The passage is abundantly clear. God's redemptive purpose is not confined or exclusive to the Jewish people. And it is certainly not confined to Western civilization, although Western civilization is entirely built upon Christianity. And as Western civilization departs from Christianity, Western civilization will fall. 
and is falling. But God's redemption proclaimed in this book and in this chapter and in this gospel embraces all people from all ethnicities and all nations the world over. The primary goal of Christ's first coming, thank God, was not to condemn in final judgment, but to save. And I give you that word zozo in the original Greek. Zozo, to save, means this. It means you are freed from something. He came to free you. He came to set you free. He came to deliver you. And more on what He came to free you and deliver you from shortly. Zozo means to repair something that has been damaged or perverted or broken somehow. Zozo means to repair, to fix, to restore. He came to fix you. He came to restore you. He came to heal you. He came to patch you up, lastingly and ultimately. A zozo can also in certain contexts mean to save something or someone from certain destruction. He came to save us from certain destruction. What is that certain destruction? The vileness of an evil world and rebellion against him. But the ultimate thing he came to save us from is his own judgment. His own just pronouncement of judgment upon all of us. Little cosmic traitors that we started out as against the high king of heaven. That's what sozo to save means. It means all these wonderful things. That's what he came to do. That's what he came to provide. Now, some tragically, as you can imagine, those who attempt to poison or pervert the truth of the divine library, some of us have in recent times tried to use verse 17 as some sort of a straw man argument to deny a final judgment. Oh, you don't have to worry about a final judgment because God, it says right here, God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. As if somehow in the end everybody makes it in and everything's going to be all right and okay. That is not in any way, shape, or form what this verse says, what this passage says, what this chapter says, what this gospel says, what the New Testament says, what the entire Bible says. Not at all. It's completely erroneous. For a start, the words of Jesus Christ himself in this gospel and all the remainder of the gospels flatly refutes this. He tells us that he himself will return to judge. The entire New Testament, inspired by God himself to the human authors, all of sacred scripture really, is quite clear about the inevitability of a final judgment at God's hands. The judgment is an ultimate reality. When the divine Son returns. And the New Testament tells us that God the Father has given the right and the authority and the task to judge this world into the hands of the Son when He comes back. This according to Jesus Himself. And again, the entire remainder of the inspired New Testament. He will judge this world and everyone in it. But thank God, here's the good news. The Evangelion, the gospel, the best news anybody has ever heard or ever will, hear, ever will hear. In the first century A.D., he arrived in the flesh, in person, yes, in order to save, to offer salvation from the judgment that one day he will carry out. Isn't that amazing? It's, I've said this before, but and it may, I, don't, I hope it doesn't sound childish, but it really is true. It's as if a judge pronounces sentence against the condemned and he disrobes himself and steps down off the bench and takes their place and takes his own sentence upon himself to rescue that criminal who doesn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. That's what he did for us. But for those, as the text clearly says, who persist in their evil and their rebellion and their unbelief, there will come a time when they will pay. They will be judged. I think this is one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. They will often gloss right over. Today's text says they stand already condemned. They're already under the indictment. They're already under the sentence. They're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. That is terrifying. It's what the text clearly says. I don't mean to get ahead of myself, but more on that in a few moments. Thank God he arrived in order to save. Now this word, ah, at last we arrive at it. <laughs> I've teased you with it. Now I'll fully explain it. Uh, in your English translation, you're going to have probably either judge or condemn. 
He did not come into the world at first to judge or condemn. It is in the original Greek, krino or krine. And I bring this to your attention because it's a very interesting word. It's a judicial language. It is very much a judicial term. It's a judicial term in this way. It means as, um, oh, let me put it this way, a judge issuing a verdict, a judge uh, issuing or pronouncing sentence, as we would say. It means actually to carry that sentence out, to punish evil, to condemn evil, to avenge some evil done. Klino means to, now this is very interesting, to carefully discern what is right from wrong and to therefore judge accordingly and punish the wrong. This word means to give sentence after examining carefully all of the particulars of a given case. He didn't come to do that in his first advent, but he will in his second. Now, I have to remind you as well, God's judgment does strike in this world. Man, I was tempted to give you lots of examples of this in which I experienced for myself or I know for myself. I even know of some evil people who, frankly, God took them out of this world, let me put it that way, because of their evil and their opposition to the gospel in particular. It's a terrifying thing. Do not think that God reserves His judgment and His punishment of evil until that last day at the end of all human history. Folks, He judges evil acts and evil people all of the time, every single day. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the final judgment. That God judges evil occurs to a degree in principle, if not in enactment, in this life, in this world. And we would do well to remember that. But verse 17 is speaking of the final reckoning with sin and with evil, what he came to save us from. And remember from last week's passage, verse 16, another thing that I'm bound and determined not to let you forget. This is all motivated by what? For God so loved the world of lost humanity and mankind. God's agape, agapao love, the highest, noblest, truest form of love. Love which is holy. Pardon me. Love which is transcendent. Love which comes from God's very personality, His nature, and His character, which frankly, I don't believe human beings are capable of, and truly, until they are born again. And we're given this love as a gift. We are to give it back to God, and we're to, as Paul would say, shed it abroad to others, particularly to our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, all motivated by His agape love for His human creatures who didn't deserve it, that some would be restored and fulfilled and would fulfill God's original intent for mankind. An amazing thing. The sending of the divine Son to save was all rooted and grounded in the love of God. By the way, about the third or fourth week of November, remember this around the table that you're going to gather at. This is what we should really be thankful for. This is the heart and the core of our gratitude and our thankfulness right here. The sending of the divine Son on mission. God's greatest gift to humanity. The sending of the Son being the most magnificent demonstration of the pure love of God ever. That ever has been and that ever will be. Now the salvation, let's focus on this for just a few moments. Let me pick this apart for you a little bit. We mention this word all the time. To be saved, to be saved, to be saved. So and so saved. Somebody has to get saved. Save this, save that. Where does that come from? Where it comes from here. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through would be saved through Him. Sozo. Let me pick this apart a little more for you. What is the salvation which Christ came to win, to accomplish, to offer? Well, for one thing, He saved you from something, and He saved you for something. He saved you from yourself, from the evil one, from the judgment, and saved you for Himself, for His kingdom, for eternity, for the divine plan. So, a little more about this salvation to save. In its fullest sense of the term, it means this. It means, first of all, to offer you pardon. To offer pardon to sinful, rebellious humans who deserve God's just condemnation. To be de- delivered, exonerated, acquitted from the judgment. It also means this. Now forget this. Zodzo means to free you, to deliver you from sin and evil itself. You are to be freed from sin itself. Set free from the power of evil itself. We are to be set free. How about this? 
He came to set us free from the tyranny of our spiritual enemies. We're facing tyranny from physical enemies. That's nothing compared to the tyranny of our spiritual enemies, the evil one himself. He came, us to, he came to set us free from all of that, to free us from the demonic forces which make a hash of this world as we know it. He came to set you free from them. I don't know if that's good news to you. It's good news to me. What did Luther's hymn say? The prince of darkness grim is nothing to the Son of God and what He has accomplished. He also came, this may get a little uncomfortable for some folks, He came to set us free from ourselves. I like that. I'll be honest, I like that. He came to set us free from ourselves. As I so often say, one of the hardest things in life that anybody and everybody is going to have to get over is you have to get over yourself. And some people cannot flatly, well, they refuse to do that. He came to set us free from ourselves. He came to set us free from our own corrupted, sinful, selfish, self-worshipping natures. He came to give us a new nature altogether, a transcendent nature, a new soul, a new life of the soul. He actually came to transform you into a new type of humanity all way abouts, a new type of humanity altogether that's fit and proper for His personal presence to enjoy Him in eternity. That's what this new birth from above is all about. That's what it's to accomplish, to make you a different type of human being altogether, to grant you eternal life, zoen aeonion. The transcendent quality of life, the transcendent quantity of life, in an age which is beyond all ages, the final chapter, which C.S. Lewis says in his children's books, which aren't so much children's books in a way, thus begins the last chapter which knows no end, which is better than all the chapters that went before. And it knows no end. This is the divine plan, the divine love that God had in mind for this world, as horrible and wretched as it is. And yet, on beautiful days like today, beautiful October, ooh, was this not one of the most magnificent Octobers ever? Which is a gift of God. And these magnificent, beautiful days, and magnificent, beautiful weather, and magnificent, beautiful redeemed people, and magnificent, beautiful animals, it all points to Zoe and Aeonion. It all points. It's all giving you these wonderful little glimpses, even in this dark world, of what's coming. The real world that's on its way. And this is the world into which He sent His divine Son on mission 2,000 years ago at the perfect time in history, at the perfect time in the plan. And by the way, I, I know all of you folks aren't quite into history as I am, but I don't know if you've noticed that the first century A.D. was a pretty rough world. And the Son of God offered Himself as an atoning sacrifice by suffering probably the most horrible death that an imperious state could ever inflict upon a person. Crucifixion at that time in history. He came to save us, not condemn us, not at the first. At first, salvation, new birth, eternal life. All that these things mean and bring that I've been explaining to you for some weeks. I quote D.A. Carson, wonderful theologian. He writes, it's important to remember, it's important to remember, it's important to remember that the Son of Man came into an already lost and condemned world under God's impending judgment. He didn't come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a thoroughly lost and evil world. For that is the nature of the world, according to John chapter 1, verse 9. And yet He came to save some. That not all of the world be, will be saved is made perfectly clear by verses 18 to 21. But God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation to it. To the world. That is why this gospel will shortly call Jesus the Savior of the world, the one and the only. Verse 18 He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, we translate this quite literally into the masculine from the original Greek, but it means everybody, men and women. Let me read this translation to you, faithful to the original. By the way, it's a magnificent verse, isn't it? And in the same breath, it is a terrifying verse. 
magnificence, and terror. All in the same verse, within the same breath as we say. The one who believes in him, Christ the Son, will not be condemned, is not condemned. But the one who does not believe is already condemned. For he or she has not believed in the name of the one and only unique Son of God, the Father. So you notice something subtle is happening here. You're making something of a transition. I'll put it to you this way. Now here in verse 18, you're not merely, we're not merely talking about mankind or humanity as a whole. Have you noticed? We're not merely referring to mankind in general or in whole or holistically. But now we're dealing in terms of the individual. Now we're dealing in terms of one eventuality or the other. For one type of individual or the other. This is very personal. Now we're not to humanity at large. We're to the individual, each and every single solitary one of us. Every human being. The one who is not judged and the one who will be judged. And there's no in-between. There's no third option. Oh, how the modern world hates that. But there it is. In the end, as we say, everyone will either be judged or they will not be judged. There is no other alternative. There is no other option. In the end, one will receive justice or mercy at the hands of God. No one receives injustice at the hands of God. At the final judgment, you will receive either mercy or you will receive justice. Mercy, none of us deserve. Judgment, all of us deserve. Nobody receives injustice at the hands of God's at the final judgment. And so we transition from speaking about the many, the world, to the one, each individual human, accountable before God. And as much as the whole world, as all of humanity, is obviously in desperate need of a divine Savior, only the one who believes in Him may receive pardon, may receive acquittal, may receive the new birth, may receive the eternal life that He came to offer that he came to make possible. And as much as modern culture, as perverse as it is, does not like this, it's not a very inclusive verse. It's something of an exclusive verse. It's something of a dividing verse. Humanity will be divided into two camps, those who receive mercy and those who receive judgment, justice. It's one eventuality or the other. As much as our modern culture doesn't like this, all of humanity is presented here as belonging, in the end, as we say, to one of two groups, each of which is spoken here or represented by one kind of individual or another. First, the good news. The one who believes. The one whose eyes, spiritual eyes and ears and soul, has been opened by the power of the Spirit of God and by the truth of His Word. The one who believes, and more upon what it means to believe, the one who believes, who has received the new birth from above, who has received eternal life, the one who completely believes personally in Christ, who he is, what he is, what he has done, that one person is not and will not be judged. There's the good news. If you are a recipient of the new birth, rejoice and rejoice every day. You will not be judged. You will survive the judgment and you will enter the eternal kingdom with your head held high, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Not your own, but that of Christ. That's the good news. I have good news for you if you are a recipient of the new birth. No sentence of final condemnation at the final judgment will ever be pronounced against you. Ever. Even now, right now, the one that is in the eyes of God pardoned, that person is truly pardoned, truly exonerated, without guilt, covered now in the righteousness of Christ. One of the great doctrines that those wonderful reformers took from the Bible and gave to the people at large again. Our sins were placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross. The imputation of our sin upon Him. So that when we receive the new birth, His righteousness is placed upon us. And when we stand before God on the day of days, He does not see filthy little cosmic traitors. He sees a new type of humanity completely covered in the righteousness of the divine Son. Praise God. That's the good news. 
And when he sees you on the day of days covered in the righteousness of his son, a recipient of this new birth from above, you enter the kingdom with colors flying. No judgment. On the other hand, the terrifying news. Conversely, on the other hand, what's the other type of human being, the other type of humanity, the other camp of humanity, if I may put it that way? It's rebellious humanity. The humanity that remains in willful, deliberate rebellion against the Creator God, who is absolute and ultimate reality for us all in the end. The one who refuses, flatly, persistently refuses to acknowledge God, to acknowledge His Christ. The one who lives their life in a perpetual state of rejection of the Creator God, Christ, and His reign and His rule. The one who refuses, flatly refuses persistently to believe, to properly acknowledge the Creator God, and particularly here, to properly acknowledge Jesus the Christ for who He truly was and is, the Word made flesh, God's one and only unique Son, who is God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead. To a degree, according to this text, this type of person does not have to wait for the final judgment. That's very frightening. It says so clearly in the text. In the original Greek, in English, and in any other language you care to translate this into. To a degree, this type of person does not have to wait for the final judgment, as if God's verdict of guilty is something to be put off and put off and put off and postponed until that end of history somewhere out there as we know it. Oh no. They're already declared to be guilty. That's what the text clearly states. Already by their flagrant, wicked, rebellion, and willful unbelief, they already stand guilty and condemned. They're just waiting for that final sentencing to be carried out. Do you realize that? That's what this text clearly teaches. It's a very sobering warning. It's a terrifying fact, really. I quote Carson again. Already in need of a Savior, this type of person compounds his or her guilt by refusing to believe in the name of that one and only Savior, the divine Son of the Father. As with an arrogant critic who mocks a masterpiece, it is not the masterpiece that will be condemned, but that critic. In a way, there is no need to await the final day of judgment, though that day will most surely come. The person who willfully disbelieves in the Father's unique one and only Son, the one and only provider of salvation, they stand condemned already. And God's wrath remains on and over them. Thus the potential for final condemnation is bound up with the mission of the Son to bring salvation. John does not explicitly appeal to the Apostle Paul's justification by faith doctrine here, but the truth of justification by faith, the substance of the matter of justification by faith, is found here. End quote. And he's right. What came out of the Reformation? What the Bible teaches. You are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by way of the proclamation of Scripture alone, soli deo gloria to the glory of God the Almighty alone. On the day of judgment, if you wish to escape the day of judgment, you must believe in the one and only Son of God, who He is, everything He said, everything He taught, everything He did, His work upon that cross. You must be totally committed to it. You must be, therefore, a recipient of the new birth from above, and you will be declared justified. And so escape the last and final judgment. Perhaps we contemporary believers should shake off our laziness, our complacency, or worst, our cowardice, and warn those of this judgment. You know why I think America is dying? Because the judgment of God has largely disappeared from the message of American Christianity. We have a culture and a society rampant with people who have no fear of God. When you have no fear of God, you are bound for the judgment, and there will be a hell on earth as a result. I, I saw something some few weeks ago that almost knocked me out of my chair. I don't know if it was sincere or not. Pray God it was. But of all people, I saw a filmed Russian news program in which Vladimir Putin was being interviewed by some rank, mocking, secular humanist journalists from, I think, the UK. 
And he got kind of stern-faced. And he sort of stopped the conversation. This is fascinating. And he said right to their face, I see you have no fear of God. That is bad. That is bad. You have no fear of God. And then he said something very interesting. He said, some of you in Western civilization who have no fear of God, you're chopping off the limb that you're sitting on. He's absolutely right, whether you like him or not. Whether it was sincere or not, he spoke the truth. He really did. I pray he finds true and lasting salvation, as well as all of the people of his nation, of every nation. Salvation's for the world. Perhaps we should shake off our complacency or fear and warn those in the darkness of an unbelieving world that they already stand condemned. They are under the judgment of a just and holy God. Isn't that the right thing to do? To give fair and proper warning? Do we not care enough for the souls of people to not give proper warning? Last of all, according to this text, one must believe in the name of God's one and only unique Son, He who is the Word made flesh, Jesus the Christ, in order to be born again, to survive the judgment, to have eternal life. And I was challenged, thank you very much, Deborah. I was, pardon me for, I don't want to put you in the hot seat, but you, you, I'm very grateful to Deborah, because Deborah said to me after the service last week, you know, I, there's something about believing in the name of one, God's one and only unique Son that people don't understand, or that people don't really grasp. Thank you for saying that to me because it never left my mind from that day to this. And I knew that I had to address what does it really mean when this chapter, these verses say, a human being must believe in the, one and only, in the name of the one and only unique Son of the Father. What does that mean exactly? Some people will think, believe in His name, what is that? I mean, what is that all about? What, what, what does that entail? What, what does that really mean? It's kind of a strange thing to say. I mean, to believe in His name. Well, yeah, His name was Jesus. Ah, okay, His name was Jesus. Is that all that it means? Does that what it really mean? I mean, what does this mean exactly? To believe in His name. Does that mean no more than some sort of mere intellectual nod? Some sort of mere intellectual assent and you go no further? Or let me use another slang expression. Does this mean just some sort of mere lip service, as we say? And nothing more profound or nothing more substantial to that? Oh, folks, it is oh so much more deep and profound and substantial than that. It's absolutely critical. The stakes cannot be higher. So let me explain to you, per the Word of God and when it was written, what this means what this means exactly to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And in order to adequately explain this to you, I have to take you back to the history and culture of the ancient world. The time in which the Son of God entered history in the flesh. The time in which this gospel was written. In which these words were first spoken, inspired, and written. I have to take you back to that world. The height of the Roman Empire. Palestine, the Mediterranean world, the first century A.D. This is what it means to believe in the name of somebody. To believe in the name of Jesus. Please listen carefully. Please listen carefully for yourself and for others. In the ancient world in the first century A.D., when Jesus arrived, when the gospel was written, somebody's name was a big deal. It was a huge deal. The core identity of the person and their mission in life. It was all bound up in their name to an appreciable degree. Someone's name did not function as a mere label as your name and my name does now. Somebody's name did not function as a mere badge of identity as our names largely do now. No. A person's name said something very important about the very nature, about the very character, about the very life purpose and mission of that person. A person's name said something very profound about the sum total of what that person was and what that person was all about. 
What is Jesus' name? Jesus is Greek for Yeshua in the Hebrew. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. The great I am. God the Almighty saves. That's what His name means. So let me put it this way. This is what we mean by the name of Jesus. Believing in the name of Jesus. Jesus' name, Yahweh saves, says something very important about the very nature and the very character of Jesus. It says something most profound about the sum total of what Jesus was, is, and ever shall be, and what he was all about. To believe in a person's given name, to believe in the name of Jesus, is to completely commit wholeheartedly to everything that person said and was thought to be. You must commit to everything that this book and Jesus himself says about who he was, what everything he said, everything he did, everything he was said to be. To believe in a person's given name is to accept, to honor, to respect everything that name said about who and what that person was and is. Are you getting it? Are you beginning to see now? Is it coming clearer? This is what God demands of us. This is what God demands of humanity. God demands this of us regarding Jesus, the Word made flesh, His one and only unique Son, God the Redeemer. We must believe in everything that Christ was and is. It's comprehensive, folks. It covers everything. Nothing is left out. Nothing. We must believe. Let me bring this word to your attention. The word that we translate believe is pistuo, pistuon in the Greek, from the root word pistis, which means faith or belief. It means this. <clears throat> You must believe. You must. It is demanded. It is required. The belief that is required is this. A profound, personal, one-on-one, one-to-one. This is between you and the Son of God Himself. A profound, personal, one-on-one trust, one-on-one confidence, hope, and belief in Jesus the Son. And it must be totally honest, absolutely genuine, absolutely authentic. In other words, let me use a few slang expressions, if, my, if I may. As the young folks say, you've got to get real about this. Nothing else will do. You've got to be all in for Jesus the Christ. One must be all in for who Jesus really was, is, and ever shall be. We must be totally committed. It's commitment. It's die hard, do or die to the end and beyond commitment and dedication. We must be totally committed to the truth of everything he said, everything he did. We must be genuinely, personally trusting in, submitting to, committing to all he was and is, all he did, his purpose, his plan, his mission. That is the belief that is absolutely required. That is the commitment that is absolutely required. If you are to have eternal life, and if you are to be acquitted from the last judgment, and folks, that is no light, superficial, or shallow thing at all. It must be genuine, wholehearted, heart and soul as we say. No false, no spurious, no disingenuous, no selfish, no transient, No shallow conversions accepted. It's all in. Or it's nothing. Which will it be? Which will it be? Which will it be? These things have been written so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, zoen aionion, in His name. I hope I answered. In the sum total of who He is, and ever was, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen and amen. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage and these wonderful words given to us to all undeserving humanity and mankind that we may receive life.
life as it was always meant to be for your human creatures, in the sum total of your divine Son, who in his first arrival came to save, to spare us from the judgment we deserve. We thank you with worship and with gratitude for what you have done and for creating us, saving us, and making us part of this plan that is wonderful beyond words. Please, O sovereign God, by the power of your spirit and by the truth of your word that is being proclaimed today, let these truths bring life and sit wisely and well in the hearts and minds and souls of all of those who have heard. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Pardon me.